Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Our second scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verse 14, part A, and verses 36 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'll get a few things out of the way before we start. Uh, One, I'm glad to see Steve join the hat club. Although I have slightly a a different problem. My problem isn't not having a haircut. My problem is overhead lighting. So shiny, I don't want to blow out anybody's webcam. So hat it is. Um, (laughs) Secondly, uh, the microphone, for those of you wondering, uh, I work at a radio station, so I do some audio editing at home and do some podcasting on the side, and it's much easier just to have this all here. Uh, Thirdly, yes, I have read all the books behind me, at least most of the way through. Some of them are textbooks, and you don't necessarily read those all the way through. So hopefully that explains some questions some people are having. Uh, Secondly, I want to say that I really do miss you guys. I sort of want to echo what Becky and Steve have been saying in past weeks. Um, as a card carrying introvert, you would think that maybe in some ways I'm uniquely placed to deal with stay at home and quarantines. Um, but it has hit me hard, especially on Sundays, not being able to see everybody and talk with everybody and, and, uh, and socialize, um, to the small degree that I choose to do so. Um, but it has hit me and I do miss you guys. And I do hope, uh, that we are able to be together soon. Uh, however, that's going to look in this new reality that we're all dealing with. So, Um, it's good to see you. I'm glad we have this technology. I'm glad we have this ability um, to do this, but it's not the same. And and I want to name that and I want us all to be able to sit with that and know that, you know, a lot of us are feeling that way, introverts, extroverts alike. So um, I also want to start with a story because 
the very first time I ever spoke with any kind of official capacity at Genesis was on one of the New Beginnings Sunday. Uh, the very first one, as a matter of fact. And I still remember vividly uh, being actually about, I don't know, 15 feet from where I'm sitting right now at the entrance to my bedroom. And I'm, I got this email from Steve asking me to speak as part of this New Beginning Sunday. And that went something like, oh, oh no, 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 I couldn't. Pot- Why would you ask me? No, 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 don't. And then I flung my phone across the room onto my bed as though somehow putting physical distance between me and the email would change what I was being asked to do. It, it didn't. That's a bad strategy. Uh, but I tell that story because when I get the dates that, you know, Steve has asked me to speak, the very first thing I do is go to the, the lectionary and try to figure out what passages are involved. And when I looked at this week's passages, this passage from Acts was the very first one listed. And I knew right out of the gate, this was the one I was going to be speaking on. And I knew also that I didn't want to. I had that same reaction, like, oh, no, no, really? You, you, really, God, this is, this is what you're going to ask me to do? Really? No? Okay. But the difference between now and five years ago is that now I know I've grown and I've, and I've gotten further down the road in my walk with Christ to the point that I know that I can sit in that tension and it's going to be okay. That I can have that reaction, recognize that reaction, and know that if I sit with whatever it is I'm being asked to do, that at some point there's going to be an opportunity, that there's going to be some, something to learn, something to grow with, something to expand beyond my comfort zone. And I tell you that because there's some harsh words in this passage, and I think there's some hard words for us to hear uh, in this. And I'm hoping that y'all will hang with me here and realize that there is that opportunity. There is that ability for us to grow and expand and get outside of our comfort zone. And so I'm hoping we can all do that a little bit by the end of today. So I want to start with a prayer, and then we're going to dive into the word together. If you join me, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. So the first thing I like to do when I get this lectionary text is put it back into its context. And that's important because, I mean, I love the lectionary. The lectionary is great. I love the fact that there's threads that connect all of scripture together and Part of the reason we had that first Peter reading is because thematically it fits with what I want to talk about in this, in this passage from Acts. I love that stuff. I love the fact that there's churches around the world right now that are speaking about this particular text. But the problem with the lectionary is that when you pull text out of its flow, out of its you know, full, full context, you can start to see things in the text that don't really fit with that flow. And you can also miss things in that flow when you pull that text out. And I think we're sort of in that latter category a little bit today. So let's talk a little bit about where we are in the story, and then we'll get into the rest of it. Chapter one of the book of Acts is Jesus ascending into heaven after the resurrection. And the disciples now needing a 12th apostle to replace Judas, and so they select Matthias. That's essentially the, the flow of the first chapter. The second chapter takes us to Pentecost, which is interesting because as we follow the church calendar here at Genesis, Pentecost is five weeks down the road. So why are we talking about a passage that occurs around Pentecost now, still during the season of Easter? That's a good question that we'll answer a little bit later on. So the start of chapter two is Pentecost, and the disciples are receiving the Holy Spirit. So they're speaking in tongues, right? Speaking in a foreign language, each of them in a different one. And the folks that have surrounded them, that have come to hear what they have to say, accuse them of being drunk. 
right? We're at a we're at a point, remember, where the apostles are now pivoting from learning from Jesus to being the teachers themselves and trying to, you know, uh, communicate Jesus's message to other folks. Remember that the last commandment that they received from Jesus is the Great Commission: Go forth and make disciples of all nations. But here they are having this holy sacred moment where they're receiving the Holy Spirit, and the the crowd's reaction is, well, they must be drunk. That's an interesting reaction, and we want to talk about that a little bit as well. But this passage itself is part of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Peter then goes into the sermon on Pentecost. And that's actually why you see the, the Acts 2.14a. A just means the first half of verse 14, for those of you who don't know that. Um, but the fact that 2.14 is included is just a signal to us that the rest of this lection comes from that Pentecost sermon. But again, you want to ask yourself, why is this sermon from Pentecost pulled up into Easter? Well, let's dig into it a little bit and see if we can't figure that out. There's some harsh words I mentioned earlier in this passage. And Peter comes with both barrels right out of the gate. Verse 36, he says, Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again, I I mean, I don't know what church growth strategy was back in the first century, but telling the folks, hey, you're responsible for the death of Jesus might not be the greatest strategy in the world. At least we wouldn't try that now. Some harsh words. And then in verse 40, he says to them, these folks, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You are a part of a corrupt generation and you need to save save yourselves. These are some harsh words, right? Not easy to hear. So for our all play today, what I want to ask you folks, and if you just type in the box of a response to this question, when somebody comes at you with harsh words, when somebody comes at you with criticisms, when somebody points out your mistakes or your faults, what kind of emotional reaction do you have? What, on a gut level, what do you react to that with? What's your reaction? Just go ahead and type in the side box over there. We'll read off some of those. Shame. Thank you, Addy. Immediate defensiveness and rebuttal, disbelief. Depends on who tells me. That's a good point, Mitch. Defensiveness, not wanting to hear it. Your brain is the one with the shell on it. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> defensive, defensive, shut down. Joe, Joe, I rise to meet the challenge. Interesting. Anger, sometimes embarrassed, defensiveness and anger. Defensive, followed by insecurity. Thank you, Mark. Defensiveness, Greece. A lot of defensiveness, right? Which is how I would react. It's very, very much defensive. And so somebody's attacking my value as a person, right? Um, and oftentimes I'll start firing back at them. Oh, yeah, well, here's what you're doing wrong. And that's not really the reaction of the folks that are listening to Peter here. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But I want to drill down specifically on what Peter's getting at. So we understand, I think if you understand the hard words that he has, it helps mitigate that reaction a little bit. So again, let's look back at verse 36. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I want to tell you, I want to suggest that that connects to verse 39, if we read that, for the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. I think what Peter is doing here is what Jesus so often did, is taking people's assumptions, taking people's expectations, taking people's ideas of this is how the world works, and flipping them on their head and saying, no, in the kingdom, that's not how it works at all. It works entirely the other way. Remember, Peter and the apostles were just accused of being drunk because they had this holy sacred experience that involved them speaking in foreign languages and their audience was primarily Jewish. And so in that Jewish context, any interaction or anything holy and sacred that's happening with, with Yahweh would involve Hebrew or perhaps even Aramaic, right? That's what, it couldn't possibly be something holy and sacred if we're speaking in a foreign language, right? Because that's the other folks. 
They're not the one who's in. So Peter's flipping that on its head and saying, oh no, you think you're in? You think you're all good? It's those other people that have to get right with God? That's, that's what you think? Well, allow me to remind you that it was you who cried out for Jesus to be crucified. If you go back to Luke chapter 23, in that scene where Pilate's asking the crowd, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they, and they shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What Peter is saying is that some of you that are in this crowd right now accusing us of being drunk are the same people that were in that crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How do we know that? All right, so I'm going to get my nerd on here for a minute, so hang with me. But I have to talk to you a little bit about the Greek language. Because in Greek, the verbs carry different endings on them. And those endings will tell you what person the verb is being spoken in. Is it first person, I crucify? Is it second person, you crucify? Is it third person, he, she, or it crucifies? So you often don't see the pronoun physically in the Greek sentence because it's sort of implied in the verb. But there are times where you will see the pronoun there. And in this particular passage, we do. The Greek word or this, this version of the Greek word for you is humase. So it says you crucified and that it's sort of redundant in that the ending is also saying that it's you. So when, when the authors do that, when they put that pronoun in there with the verb ending, what they're doing is they're emphasizing, no, it's not just you. Peter's not saying it's, it's not just some generic y'all that, that crucified Jesus. He's looking at these people. You can imagine him wagging his finger. He's looking at these people and saying, no, it's you specifically, the people whom I'm looking at, you're the ones that crucified Jesus. That's harsh, right? That, that's harsh. He's saying, you folks, the fact that you're interested here in following Jesus, that doesn't, that doesn't what makes Jesus Lord and Messiah. God made Jesus Lord and Messiah, not you, not your interest. You're the ones that crucified him. And so what I'm saying, when he connects it to verse 39, he's making that connection that, yes, the promises of God are for you. He's telling the crowd this. You crucified Jesus, but the promises of God are still for you. Promises of God here simply means, uh, simply means the reception of the Holy Spirit. And for your children, and for all who are far off. Now, remember, that great commission, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Well, all the nations include Gentiles. So Peter knows that the Gentiles are supposed to be part of this. He, how that's exactly going to work, he hasn't figured that out yet. And all who are far off and everyone for whom the Lord our God calls to him. You're going to accuse us of being drunk because we speak in a foreign language? No. no. You don't get to decide who's in and who's out. God does that. You don't get to decide who God's going to call to him. God does that. That's the criticism. That's the harsh word that Peter has for folks here. Now, fortunately, the church learned that lesson, and we have had no problems deciding who's in and who's out for the rest of church Okay, I almost got through that with a straight face. Almost. No, we have spent as a church, as the church universal, we have spent 2,000 years spending way too much time and way too much energy trying to decide who's in and who's out. Starting with that early church. Is it the Jews or the Gentiles? Who's in, who's out? Men or women? Who's in, who's out? In the Middle Ages, it was the rich and the powerful and the landowners. Are they the ones that are in? Or is it the poor and the servants and the serfs? Are they in, who's in, who's out? In the Reformation, was it the Catholics or is it the Protestants? Who's in and who's out? In the 19th century, we had whites in this country subjugating blacks to save slavery. And even though they taught the black folks what we meant to be a Christian, does that mean that they actually counted them amongst them as Christians? They certainly didn't treat them that way. Who's in and who's out, black or white? In the 20th century, we had the rise of the moral majority. Is it the Republicans? You have to be a Republican to be in or, or can you be a Democrat and still be in? Who's in, who's out? 
in our time now in the 21st century, of course, we have the debates about, you know, is it, the, is it gays or straights or is it transgender or cisgender? Who's in? Who's out? And it's remarkable that we have spent this timeline, this 2,000 years, trying to decide who's in or who's out because time after time after time in the Bible, it tells us not to do that, that that isn't our job. God does that. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and if I preach on nothing else the rest of my life, I will preach on this verse every single opportunity I get. Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. You can take that entire historical list that I just laid out and plug any of those in or outs into that verse, and it means the same thing. All of us. All of us are one in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about it more in, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 and 3 say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's not for us to decide who's in or who's out. God does that. In Jesus' own words, Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 25, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The least of these. The least of these are the folks that society has looked at and said, no, you're out. God names those folks members of his family. We don't decide who's in or who's out. God does that. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, of course, the famous judgment phrase, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You want to start judging people? You want to try and figure out who's in or who's out? Start with yourself. We don't decide who's in or who's out. God, God does that. So if that's, the, if that's the case, if the Bible is telling us that we have to let go of this judgment and trying to figure out who's in or who's out, why do we keep doing it? Why has the church spent 2,000 years wasting time and energy trying to figure out who's in and who's out if the Bible is commanding us not to do that? Well, here at Genesis, of course, we often go back to Genesis and original sin. And I think original sin is exactly this. Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat from a tree, not just any tree, but a specific tree. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why, why is the knowledge of good and evil a bad thing for human beings is the obvious question. I suggest that it's because it leads to judgment. And I'm not talking about legal judgment. I know we have lawyers watching right now, and they're wonderful people. I'm not talking about legal judgment. I'm talking about the kind of sin-ranking judgment that we do almost on an unconscious level every single day. The kind of sin-ranking judgment that leads us to say things, well, I'm, like, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that person. I mentioned earlier that I work at a radio station, and of course, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic is almost all we're talking about these days. And one of the calls that I keep hearing over and over and over again is from folks complaining that they've been to the grocery store and they've seen a parent with their kids at the grocery store, and that, uh, that's upsetting to them. Why would you take your kids to the grocery store where you have all these people congregated together? It's an easy place to catch the virus. Why would you subject your children to that? The problem is that when you think that thought, when you think, well, I'm a better parent than that parent because I don't bring my kids to the grocery store, you don't know that parent's backstory. God does. We don't. You don't know if that parent's a single parent or not. 
You don't know if that single parent maybe lost their job or has been furloughed. You don't know if they don't have family in town or they just don't have the ability to pay somebody to come and watch their kids so they can go to the grocery store. We do know that the kids have to eat, right? So maybe they don't have any other choice but to bring those kids to the grocery store in that case. Well, maybe I'm not a great parent, but at least I'm not like that. That happens all the time. We do it in so many different phases of our lives. And it's the kind of judgment that leads us to try and figure out who's in and who's out. Greg Boyd, and I'm sure other people have said this, but this is where I've heard it from. Greg Boyd has described that kind of judgment as ascribing worth to ourselves at a cost to another. Well, maybe I'm not that great, but at least I'm better than that person. And immediately we've shifted a ranking into a ranking system. But Jesus' model for self-sacrificial love is the exact opposite of that, right? It's ascribing worth to others, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves. If we see that parent with their kids, are we judging or are we feeling some sort of compassion for them, right? That's the question. In verse 40, Peter tells these folks another one of these harsh phrases, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You are part of a corrupt generation. Little more Greek here, hang with me. But that word corrupt in Greek is the word skolios. If that sounds familiar, it sh probably should. The word itself is translated usually as crooked or harsh or unjust, or in this case, corrupt. And it is the, the, where the term scoliosis comes from, which is an unnatural curvature of the spine. It's a medical condition. Peter's saying that that generation, and I would suggest ours as well, is corrupt because it's doing something unnatural, something that it was not designed to do, namely this kind of judgment, namely trying to figure out who's in and who's out. It's not what we were designed to do. Like I said, so much of that becomes almost on an unconscious level. It's almost reflexive that we have these thoughts. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. These thoughts come to us. We don't need to kick ourselves for having the thought. We have all kinds of thoughts we wish we didn't have, right? But we can choose how we're going to act upon those thoughts. When we see that parent at the grocery store with their kids, we can choose whether we keep on judging them or whether we stop and take the time to pray a blessing on that person or any number of other ways that you could maybe help that person out. We have that choice. We have that ability. And if we're going to follow Jesus' model of self-sacrificial love and ascribe worth to the other, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves, then we have to make that choice. But broaden it back out for a second. We talked about earlier about who's in and who's out. The question is, is the church universal in trying to figure out who's in and who's out, applying Jesus' self-sacrificial model of love, or are we doing judgment, right? I would suggest that we spent 2,000 years trying to figure out who's in and who's out, and the church needs desperately to repent of that. But you can't just stay on the universal level. Because if I sit here and say, well, you know, here at Genesis, we do a pretty good job. It's those other churches that need to get their act together. Now I'm just doing the same kind of judgment that I've just been decrying for the last five minutes. So we have to ask ourselves, A, is the church universal doing a good job of ascribing worth to the other, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves? And then we have to ask ourselves, are we as a Genesis community doing that, or can we do better? I would suggest if we were at Elam right now, I'd be pointing at the back doors. And I would suggest anybody that walks through those doors, no matter how broken they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, deserves to have the opportunity to join us in a safe and welcoming and loving environment because that's what God asks us to do. Ascribe worth to the other, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves. Are we doing that or can we do better?
It's a question we can ask ourselves. We can ask it even on an individual level, right? Am I doing that? I've been asking myself that the entire time I've been preparing this sermon. Am I ascribing worth to others, even if it comes at a cost to myself, well enough, or can I do better? If we drill down even a little further, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Newsflash. I think in a time of pandemic, it feels kind of natural for us to care for ourselves, to almost turn inward, to care for us, to care for our own. And to a degree, that's a good thing, right? If we keep our families safe and we keep our families isolated, we don't spread the virus. So that's a good thing. But like any good thing, if it's taken too far, it becomes a dangerous thing or a bad thing. When we take that good instinct to take care of ourselves, to take care of our own too far, we start to hoard stuff. That's why nobody can find toilet paper right now. We start keeping more than we need because we're scared and this makes us less scared if we can surround ourselves with comfort. But when we're doing that, we're judging that our comfort and our reducing our fear level is more important than other people's needs. We stop caring about other people. We're judging that we're, we're more important. Instead of ascribing worth to others, we're ascribing worth to ourselves. Now, there's a balance there. It's not all one or the other. I'm not telling you to run out and give away all your toilet paper, obviously. I'm not telling you to run to your nearest hospital and try to volunteer with them. They probably wouldn't have you anyway. I am saying that if you find yourself with some extra food, I love the fact that we've got people dropping off food at the hacks, right? And make sure that Prism is trying to stay, stay stocked. I'm sure Prism would take cash donations as well. There's plenty of need out there in terms of food shelves, and we can help if you're in a position where you can help. That's the sort of thing that we're being asked to do in terms of ascribing worth to other people. We just had yesterday in the state of Minnesota a mask drive, right, where you could take masks or mask material to your local fire station, and they would distribute those to folks that needed them. That's the kind of ascribing worth to other people. That's the kind of thing that we can do while making sure that we're not spreading the virus, that we're kind of protecting ourselves and protecting others. We can still ascribe worth to other people in a time of pandemic. So I mentioned earlier, or I asked earlier, how did it feel when you got a harsh word and you guys were great in your responses? Uh, a lot of defensiveness. And that's, that's how I, if I was in that crowd and I heard Peter saying those things that he said, I would have been defensive for sure. But that's not really how they reacted. They, it does say in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and asked Peter, what should we do? And in verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized. And then in verse 41, it says, so those who welcomed his message were baptized. That's an interesting phrase, those who were those who welcomed his, mes- his message. Because it implies that not everybody did. But we find right after that, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. So a lot of them did. A lot of people did. Now, church growth isn't the end-all, be-all of, of anything, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that it is. But I'm saying that when we live in the direction that Jesus has laid out for us, when we live with the, the ethic of ascribing worth to others, even if it comes at a cost to ourselves, it's countercultural enough. It goes against the grain of the assumptions and the expectations for the way that the world works. It puts those on its head enough that it makes people curious. And on some very basic human level that we don't really understand, but we know it's there, we recognize, yeah, that's, that's how it should be. That's how we should be acting. If everybody in the world acted that way, the world would be a better place. On some almost unconscious level, we know that to be true. Well, we have the opportunity when we're confronted with harsh words, to make better choices in that direction. 
that's what I think Peter's driving at. And that's what I think we need to hear from these words from this particular text. I mentioned earlier that it was interesting that this Pentecost sermon, this section of the Pentecost sermon was pulled up into Eastertide and that there's a reason for that. Easter is a time of renewal and resurrection and new life. We don't do those things. God does that. God does the renewing. God does the resurrecting. God brings about new life, not us. What's for us to do is to acknowledge and accept God's love and grace and mercy and blessings, allowing those things to fill us up to overflowing so that we can then pour that out to others. That's the flow. God has an inexhaustible supply of love and grace and mercy and blessing. Whatever we receive, if we turn around and can give that right back away, ascribing worth to others, even if it feels like at a cost to ourselves, God's going to be right there behind us to fill us back up. But when we get caught in this game of judgment, when we get caught in this game of trying to figure out who's in and who's out, we interrupt that flow. We screw that flow all up. It's not for us to judge other folks' worth. Other folks have the same level of insurpassable worth as image bearers of the divine as we do. It's not for us to judge that. God does that. God figures out who he's going to call to him. God figures out who's in and who's out, not us. We have to let go of that need to be ranking each other according to our sins. We have to let go of it because it interrupts that flow and it's not what we're called to do. We don't decide who's in and we don't decide who's out. God does that. Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.